Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Canadian author Jan Martel became an international figure with the publication of his novel Life of Pi and the subsequent award-winning film by director Ang Lee. His follow-up novel, Beatrice and Virgil, hit the bestseller list in 2010. Jan Martel's latest novel, The High Mountains of Portugal, consists of three sections set in three different time periods and is a philosophical investigation into the nature of faith. This interview was recorded on February 9, 2016. My guest is Jan Martel, whose latest novel is The High Mountains of Portugal. Jan Martel is the author of Life of Pi, Beatrice, and Virgil. There are five books of fiction, one book of nonfiction, which is a very strange book, which I'm going to want to ask you about. But first, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the themes that appear in your works, the nature of faith. My first two books, so the collection of short stories and my first novel, have nothing to do with faith. They're anti-faith. The characters have very anti-religious feelings. I grew up very much in the secular mainstream where art replaced religion. And it's only in Life of Pi that I became interested in that phenomenon called faith. Why? Because, well, I'm going to generalize here, but being a male and being bright, I was encouraged to be reasonable. And then I was good at school, and school kind of encourages you to be reasonable. And then I studied philosophy at university, which encourages you to be reasonable. So by the time I got to my mid-30s or early 30s and I was traveling in India, I didn't realize this, but I, was, I guess I was starting to run on empty, that being reasonable in itself wasn't a satisfying experience. It had scoured away a lot of the wonder of life, um, which in some ways is very useful. It's useful to be critical, to scour away the, the nonsense and the, the what's uh, reprehensive. But it was also starting to affect me as a writer, because I, I had become a writer, and an, a writer is an artisan of, of wonder. And by the time I got to India, I was realizing that this excess of reasonableness was affecting my contentment. And I happened to be in India, and I noticed for the first time religious manifestations, which are very common in India. India is an exuberantly religious place, for better and for worse. You see manifestations of religion everywhere, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Jainism, Sikhism, you see it. And for the first time in my life, I started looking at religion not seeking what I hated in it, the homophobia, the sexism, the paternalism, the narrowness. I started seeing quiet acts of faith that were not out to judge anyone, not out to, to, to hate anyone, but just were a quiet affirmation of a different reading of the universe. And I was suddenly struck by that, of how after you know hundreds of years of the triumph of modernity, the triumph of science, medicine, technology, all those stupendous acts of reason that had got, you know, 
us on the moon and us vaccinated and all that, how is it there were still people that believed in these funny little thing called gods? And rather than approaching that question with an ironic or a cynical perspective, I sort of said, I said, after all, I'm a writer. Everything I write is based on the suspension of disbelief. These people in religion also operate under the idea that you have to have faith. And so I sort of saw that parallel between art and religion, and I just became interested. And I said, from the secular mainstream, I became interested in examining that. So, And that interest has been ongoing. Now, my previous novel, Beatrice and Virgil, was nothing particularly to do with religion. There's, I think, a brief mention of between the two main characters. But essentially, uh, it's been in Life of Pi and the High Mountains of Portugal that I've been interested in looking at how faith operates, what it means, in a purely sort of exploratory way. The High Mountains of Portugal consists of three novellas uh, that are related. The first, I guess, has elements of surrealism in it. The second is kind of a fantasy, and the third is more realist. Yet they take place in the same area, and there are objects that go from one story to the other. When you began looking at it, where, where did you start for this particular book? Uh, well, literally, I started at the beginning and finished at the end. I write in a quite linear fashion. I started with research. I do a lot of research. So, you know, in this case, in part one, it features a road trip in a very early automobile that takes place in 1904. So I did research on, you know, 1904 Renault. So I found a museum in the south of England that had a 1904 Renault. And so I looked at it from every angle. And I read up on animal behavior, on, uh, on pathology, all kinds of things. And that gave me ideas. Those ideas led me to further avenues of research. And then I started writing. And each section, you call it three novellas. It's funny, I still call it a, a novel. Uh, but you're right, they're in three distinct sections. They're very linked, not only by a, you know, a certain animal character, but also mainly a certain thematic, which is our relation to faith. And I say, you know, faith, and I, the reason I, I talk about religious faith is that I find it's the most, bo it's the boldest of faiths. You know, faith in a loved one has a degree usually of some self-interest. You fall in love with a woman or a man. It is an act of faith, but you also, the reward is tangible. You know, in physical terms of comfort, and perhaps in terms of status, perhaps in terms of re reproduction, of having descendants. Religious faith is the one that, there's obviously a reward in there. But the self-interest is not as obvious. The, the gratification of religion is a less tangible one than the gratification of, you know, of, of, of physical love, of, of uh, romantic love, or even of political love, loving a politi particular political system. So um, I chose religious faith because it's the boldest, the most imaginative leap of faith that the human species has managed. So each of the three sections has a different tinge to it in terms of, of faith. So in part one, uh, Tomas is in rebellion. Uh, he has no faith. And so I'm sort of interested in exploring there how that manifests itself, what happens. In part two, the character has faith, but his faith is tested. It's very easy having faith when it's not tested. The real test of faith is when it is challenged, mainly by adversity. And in part three, I was sort of positing what would be the ideal state you'd want to be in if you were in a relationship with an object of faith. And I thought it'd be, well, be obviously to be with that object of faith. So, you know, the ideal relationship with Jesus would have been to be the few hundred people who actually um, met him in the year zero to 30, you know, 32 or 33. His disciples, obviously, who would have known him intensively day in and day out. But even people who just met him briefly, you know, the leper who was cured by him, the woman whose hemorrhage was cured by him. What would that have been like? Well, we know what it was like. They were so struck that they talked about it every day of their lives subsequently. And these oral tales eventually 
you know, got to the years of Paul, who wrote letters, and eventually they got to the years of the uh, evangelists, who wrote these letters that changed the course of Western civilization. So in part three, I posit this sort of state of grace of someone living with his faith object, and it completely transforms his life. Well, we can get into what the faith object is, if it's okay with you. Absolutely. And that's Odo, uh, a chimpanzee, which brings me back to my very first question. When you start, if you start at the beginning and go to the end, you still know at that point that you're going to be searching for information about chimpanzees or oh. you're going to be searching for information about, in part two, autopsies Ag- in 1939 and, and Agatha, Agatha Christie. Christie. Yeah. No, you're right. Sorry, I should have explained that. Before I write a word, I've already in my mind figured out a lot of things. Yeah. So in this one, all my stuff actually, before I write a word, because to me it's such a... You know, writing a novel, I don't want to sound pompous here, but writing a novel is kind of like building a cathedral or a really tile skyscraper. It's a lot of work in the head, at least for me. I'm not as natural a writer as, you know, Joyce Carol Oates or these people who write in entire chapters. It's, it's, it's a labor for me. So if I'm going to do that, I'm going to very carefully plan it out. I'm going to very carefully do my architectural plan before I start doing the foundation. So you're right. I've done all my, I've thought it all through. So right from the start, I had this chimpanzee in different guises. In part one, he's sort of a reified chimpanzee. He's just a sculpture. In part two, he's imaginary in a sense. He's magical. So he's only access, accessed if you can do that magical thinking. And then in part three, he's quite concrete. He's the real thing. He's literally a real chimpanzee. So yes, you're right. Once I decided that, and in my mind weighed the pros and the cons of various things, then I was directed in my research. And so, um, you're right, by the time I started the first word of the, of the novel, I pretty well knew where I was going exactly as to how it would end. And same thing with Life of Pi. When I wrote the author's note, I knew exactly what chapter 100 would contain. I didn't know the exact wording, but I knew pretty well what it was going to say. In your research, then, did you find anything about chimpanzees that either was a surprise that you could put in the book or something that made you think, I don't know about this idea. Well, it is a fictionalized treatment of a chimpanzee. So, in fact, chimpanzees are in some ways very similar to us, and mainly in their extraordinary ability to be aggressive. You know, lions are actually relatively peaceable animals. They kill, but only to eat, and they otherwise are just sit around and, you know, they're like people on you know, couch potatoes, drinking beer, watching TV. They're not particularly active animals. Chimpanzees have a capacity to be extraordinarily violent. They're the only animal that we consider to sort of commit murder in the sense that they kill unnecessarily. So stray chimpanzees that roam into the territory of a foreign uh, troop of chimpanzees will sometimes be hunted down and killed without there being any necessity for it, which is unusual in the animal world because in the animal world, in a sense like with us, when two belligerent males encounter each other, they usually have many signals to, 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 they signal their belligerence in many ways to sort of not get to the real down-and-out killing fight. You know, men will, will, will shout, will throw their chests out, will shove a bit, but they won't normally immediately pull out the gun that, here we are in America, they'll pull out and shoot each other. They'll usually signal. And the same thing with animals. They will usually signal their aggression so they don't get to the final fight because if they do, it's to the death. Chimpanzees don't seem to have as many limits. And so... They're normally, they can be extraordinarily violent. So in this one I chose, and it's signaled early in that section, that uh, Odo is very much an omega uh, male, a very subservient by chimpanzee standards, because I didn't want the the kind of horrifically violent chimpanzees that, that can be out there. So in that sense, it's fictionalized. In, and you asked if there are surprises. Well, yes, because it is intriguing how uh, the greater apes 
have more of an intellectual life than other animals do. And it is odd how they do reflect in our ways. They do have the, the rudiments of civilization and of culture. You know, they were used, uh, this is quite well known, they were used for sign language experiments. So they do have a capacity for language. But essentially, honestly, this is not a work of animal behavior. This is a novel in which I use a chimpanzee mainly as a vehicle to make a point. And I chose a chimpanzee because Jar Darwin brought chimpanzees very close to us suddenly. After centuries of animals being pushed away from us, suddenly Darwin in the mid-19th century said, you know what, animals are actually a lot closer to us than you think. We, he didn't know that, but we know now that they share over 97% of our genetic material. I wanted a smoky mirror to who we are, something that would plausibly be human, yet not quite human, so that if I put it on a cross, and here we'll reveal that, that it wasn't farcical but slightly disturbing. What I noticed about Odo and his relationship with Peter is that no matter how much he's an individual and quote-unquote a person, there's always a sense of danger because you never know what's happening. And I guess that ties in with faith. Absolutely. There is an element of mystery to animals, which I think is part of their appeal. And as you're right, is inherently... It's interesting when you read about religion. Don't forget, I come from the mainstream. When you're from the mainstream, you know nothing about religion. You have assumptions that are then corrected when you learn more. And one thing that was always interesting that I, when I read the, the Old Testament and the New Testament is, yes, that element of fear. And, of, of course, we, we tend to see awe. It's more not fear, but awe. Because we tend to assume that God is a, you know, some sort of lovey-dovey fear. And that element of awe is sort of surprising. And of course, it'd be necessary. Something that would be, some greater plan would be awe-inspiring. Awe, awe and once again, I find it echoed in, in animals that they do contain an element of mystery because they are beyond our understanding. Humans, even of a different culture who don't speak a language, we can somehow read ourselves better. We are less mysterious to ourselves than animals are to ourselves. And so that, in a sense, echoes nicely the idea of, uh, of why I use animals. And it is because, in some ways, our relationship to animals echoes our relationship to the divine. There are qualities that both of those share. So one thing that you, is, is striking when you look at religious figures is their capacity to be in the present moment, to be right here, right now. Um, you read that about Jesus, about Buddha, about Krishna. Their sense that when they're with whoever they're with, they're fully there. And that's a striking feat. Well, that's also an animal-like quality. Animals are also very good at being in the present moment. They're also very limited in their capacity to delve into the past or worry about the future. And they're also, on some level, ineffable. I mean, we've all had dogs uh, and cats. Absolutely, and that's domesticated ones, which are quite infantilized. They're absolutely ineffable. So there is that mystery, both in animals and in the divinity. There's that sense of presence in the animal and the divine. And we're the ones in the middle who are, have great difficulty being in the present moment. We're always distracted by thoughts of the past or by worries about the future. We are not ineffable. We're supremely, f what's the opposite of ineffable? <laughs> We're supremely fubble. So that's why I find the divine and the, and the animal echo each other very nicely, which is why in these novels about religion, I use so many animals, because I find it actually it lends itself to, to the theme. Jan Martel, in the second section of the High Mountains of Portugal, you have a curious notion that I'd never thought of, which is the relationship of Agatha Christie mysteries to the Gospels, and apparently 
you read all her books between 1920 and 1939. So let me ask you, did you start with this understanding? Was it something that hit in your head and was it just reinforced by the books? No, I never thought of it before. It was sort of an insight I had. And to be honest, I should remember this, but I cannot remember why I thought of it particularly. I mean, I was, I was already thinking about the Gospels because after all, this is the novel is broadly an allegory on the life of Jesus uh, set in, in secular terms. But I had this insight, and I read all the her books, except for the ones written under other names, like all the ones that she wrote as murder mysteries. I read, and indeed, I saw this surprising connection between the Gospels and her murder mysteries. You know what at first struck me about Agatha Christie is that she is by far the world's most popular writer in the history of literature in any language. She has sold more than anyone else. And it always struck me. Why? Because she's very English. And there's a particular appeal to murder mysteries. It is a genre piece. So why would that be? You know, why is it not some great work of literature that is the woman? No, it's, it's Agatha Christie. And I finally, my insight was that it, because it does operate in many of the same ways as the Gospels. And just as the story of Jesus changed the course of Western civilization and therefore was a best-selling story at that time, I think it's because they operate in the same way. And they make us think about death in ways that are palatable. Because we're afraid of death. We, of course, are afraid of death, literally. But even talking about death, we try to distance ourselves as much as possible. So we can tolerate news stories about death and war, but only so much. But we know any wise person knows that at one point you have to think about it. And Agatha Christie managed to make you think about it, but in an entertaining way. But it's still thinking about it. You know, murder mysteries are set in a moral structure. Even the most odious person who was murdered, so for example on Murder on the Orient Express or Appointment with Death, the victims there are not nice people. Nonetheless, you have to find who did it and why. There's still a, a quest for meaning, for placing death in a framework that is meaningful. Well, the Jesus event 2,000 years ago did the same thing. Jesus talked about death in a way that was palatable. Why? Because he resurrects. In a sense, death, which until then was perceived as a finality for humans, suddenly is no longer a finality. And that was such a startling resolution to death, such a startling resolution to a murder, that it changed the course of Western civilization. And there's also a lot of narrative similarities. I mean, just a very, uh, I don't want to summarize the whole section here, but, you know, for example, the role of the witness. In a murder mystery, witnesses are key. Hercule Poirot arrives, or Jane Marple arrives on the scene, and there's a body there, and she starts, he or she starts looking around, talking to people, talking to different witnesses. Well, the murder of Jesus, also the witness is key. And just as witnesses are unreliable in the Gospels, there's four, as for all, there's only four canonical Gospels. There's more than that, but there are four of them, and they don't say the same thing. Each varies slightly. Each is inconsistent. Sometimes it's contradictory with other ones. So one reality, four reports of it. Same thing with in Murder Mysteries of Agatha Christie. Witnesses are unreliable. They don't say the same thing. And there's all kinds of other similarities that struck me. And don't forget, in the novel, there's a purpose. It's not just it's an interesting idea in itself, but in that section, there's a doctor who's working late at night, and it's a wife who knocks on the door late at night and says, listen, I have a I have a solution. He wasn't aware there was a problem. And so she's making this linkage for a reason. It's connected to something, a greater purpose. If they put a murder mystery on top of, uh, of the gospel, they would see that there's a lot of narrative similarities, and uh, it's, it's quite surprising. Now we have, I guess, mysteries that are a little bit more mixed in terms of of what they're trying to do. It's not quite the same thing for modern mysteries, I don't think. No, you're right. You know, what's nice about her, too, and I'll say, sorry, one more, another thing that's very similar is... Just as there's the obtuse witness in the Gospels, you know, the disciples were never understanding Jesus. He always had to explain things. But if you read the Gospels carefully, you start seizing things. Same thing with the murder mysteries of Agatha Christie. If you read them carefully, you can actually figure them out. There's a lot of murder mysteries nowadays, like P.D. James. It's a wonderful build-up, but then you're just told who did it. 
and there's no way you yourself can understand it. So once again, there's a difference there. Agatha Christie at her best, I think, was unrivaled. You know, if you ask me if I had to redo my life, what books would I have chosen to write? I'd have said the best of her murder mysteries. It must, must have been intensely satisfying to write those. Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yeah. Once that's written, there's nothing else. <laughs> you know, and of course, Murder on the Orient Express keeps getting remade. And mm. curiously, The Mousetrap, a play based on Crispy, is the longest running show in history. One of my favorites, actually, is one is called Murder on the Links. Not as well known, but extraordinarily convoluted. Oh, here's another similarity, by the way, is we all know who the victim is. You know, she can call one of her murder mysteries, Lord Edgware Dies. Or, as you said, the murder of Roger Ackroyd. The victim is a given, just as the victim is a given in the Gospels. We all know who the victim is. It's Jesus. But who did it? It's amazing how you read an Agatha Christie and you immediately forget who did it. Same thing with the Gospels. If you ask someone quickly on the street, hey, 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 who killed Jesus? They'd be sort of like, uh, I don't know. It's really funny. We forget who the victimizer was in the Gospels. We forget who the victimizer was in Murder Mysteries of Agatha Christie. Well, we also know, and it's actually Jan Martell, it's actually in High Mountains, that there's actually no real witness proof that Jesus even lived. No. Very few people doubt the existence of some rabble-rouser named Jesus of Nazareth. It's what he meant that people doubt. But no, I don't think there's any notion that he didn't exist. Uh, I think that's generally... I don't think there's few people who deny that he was a complete myth the way, let's say, you could say Krishna was sort of a, a myth or Adam and Eve. There is a notion that he really did exist. It's just what he meant. After all, there were lots of messiahs at the time, lots and lots of Jewish messiahs, right. and nearly all of them were strung up by the Romans. But what's interesting is those are all forgotten. You know, there's one called Simon of Korba. Anyway, there's lots of those that were just killed off by the Romans. Jesus was also killed off, but we don't talk about the other messiahs, but we're still talking about Jesus. So something about him Something about him, as I said, changed the course of Western civilization. Well, something about the myth certainly did. Yes, you're right, something about the myth. I said, I'm not uh, arguing from a particular faith right. point, and whatever you want to say, whether it's he was particularly charismatic or just lucky. You know, the key thing is Paul. Christianity obviously starts with Jesus, but really got to start with Paul, Paul of Tarsus. The earliest Christian documents are the letters of Paul, who never even met Jesus. He may, you know, he, he was 30 years later, he started writing his letters, and he's the one who came up with this idea of how is it that a Messiah was, you know, rides into Jerusalem, presumably to become the great Jewish Messiah, changed things, and suddenly he's, he's, he's crucified like a common criminal, because, you know, it was Roman citizens who would be beheaded. It was lowly non-Romans who would be crucified. How did this lowly guy who gets strung up... You know, and he was a Messiah. How did that? He's the one who said, "Oh, it was deliberate. He did this so he could take on our burden and sins, and he be he be resurrected." He's the one who gave it that spin that turned Jesus from being a lowly, rabble-rousing criminal to the Son of God. Um, so Christianity starts with him. That twist on it that suddenly struck a chord and changed everything. Jan Martel, before we move on, can I ask you a very broad question? When you go back and you look at these books. Do you fully understand what you've written? No, no. In a sense, I'm aware of my intent, but that's only the starting point. That's like a sprinter who's, you know, about the start of a 100-meter sprint. He, he, his intent is to cross a 100-meter line as fast, faster than anyone else. What that impact might be on other people, how they might feel about it, is something else. So same thing with all my books. I have a certain intent, but I've come to realize, and it's an obvious thing, that author intent is very quickly taken over by reader reception. How people take a book may coincide with how you feel about it as a writer, but may be taken in a whole new direction. And I especially saw that, of course, with Life of Pi. People brought insights that completely surprised me, but I saw fit very nicely. 
Because after all, a book is 50%. The other 50% is what readers bring to it. And that's where the book really becomes something. So I know in some ways I'm not sort of clueless. I have a clue. But it, it goes in directions that surprise me and, and are deeply gratifying. Well, there's also the possibility that of that 50% that is you, not all of it is conscious, too. Oh, absolutely. You're totally right. In fact, the reasons why I write the books that I write, you know, I could say, well, I had this idea in mind. But why I had that particular idea comes from sort of some unconscious part of me that, in fact, I don't question. To some extent, as much as I plan, underpinning it, of course, is a degree of spontaneity. I just write because that's what feels right to write. The high mountains of Portugal is an actual place, but there are no high mountains in Portugal. Why did you choose that location? Because in the northeast of the country, where I set this novel, it is a region called Trachos Montes. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, Trachos Montes, which means, in Portuguese, beyond or behind the mountains. And there are no mountains. There's at most hills, and not even particularly stark hills. They sort of, it generally rises up, and then you have kind of a slightly mountainous plateau. When I first visited the country when I was 1920, it's the first country I traveled in on my own, it struck me, and I realized how geography, our naming of things, toponymy, is an imaginary feat, is a kind of storytelling feat. We name places to make them more familiar to us, less daunting, less strange, less mysterious. And I was very struck that they'd call a place beyond the mountains, when first of all, there are no mountains to start with, and then your preoccupation isn't even the illusory mountains, but what's behind them. And so that always stayed with me. And so the, the high mountains in this novel, and two of the characters point out that they themselves are surprised that there are no mountains, is because these are sort of, in my mind, this is my intent, we'll see how readers receive it, in my mind, these are imaginary mountains. They're magical mountains. They're mountains in the mind that you climb or fail to climb in your, in your heart, in your mind. So part one in Tomas, his quest is essentially negative. He seeks to conquer these mountains. Whereas um, in part three, uh, Peter Tovey and his chimpanzee Odo are in a sense sitting on a mountaintop meditating like Buddhist monks. They're in a sort of state of grace on top of this mountain. These are imaginary mountains. They're magic mountains. Where did you find them? When you were younger, you went backpacking through there. Did it just stay in your mind all those years? Yes, I had started working on a novel set in Portugal in my early 20s after that visit to Portugal. And it was set in this mountainous region of Portugal. And there, there were real mountains. They were alpine, because in fact, in that very early novel, it never worked out. Villagers died in trying to do a trek. And there was a, an animal, too, a dog, a talking dog. And the, the clever device I like there is the dog narrates the entire story. And then towards the end, but not right at the end, let's say maybe three quarters in, the dog is killed off. And yet the narrator continues, so the reader in my you know, 21-year-old mind was to understand that that voice wasn't actually that dog, but was some sort of greater voice talking through the consciousness of, the vo of, the, of, of existence. But anyway, it didn't work out. I had no idea how to write a novel. I was too young. I was too immature in every way. But I tried to write it again and when I went to India. Those of you who read Life of Pi will remember that the author goes to India meaning to work on a novel set in Portugal. And once again, I, d I couldn't do it. I and it only took uh, uh, the last few years that I sort of found a way to, to tell that story. Your novel, Beatrice and Virgil, contains a play written out of sequence. Does the play exist in, you know, more of it? No. I wrote further extracts of it, okay. but they were written to serve, the, to serve the novel. What I like about a play, I've always been attracted to plays from a playwriting perspective, but I don't have that knack really for moving plot forward the story for it strictly through dialogue. Playwrights have that knack, I don't. But what I love about a play is as soon as you say a play, you eliminate place, you see a stage, and that stage could be anywhere. 
in the mind. But it, so it, it's a nice uh, sweeping away of everything but the essential. So I liked the idea of a play, and I liked it sort of in a sense its universality. So that's why I had extracts. But but no, I didn't write out the whole play. Life of Pi became a very successful film uh, by Ang Lee. Did you have anything to do with the film at all? Or? I was involved only very early on. I read two early drafts of the screenplay, and I have a small cameo. I'm on a little opposite pond on a bench, and on the, on the side of the pond, close to the camera, there's a grown adult pie and the author. But other than that, no, it's Ang Lee's movie, and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's their production. I took a back seat. In fact, I wasn't asked to be in the front seat for, to start with, but also I'm a writer. I'm, I'm happy. You know, my tool is the written word. I was happy to leave Ang Lee in the studio, uh, try to translate that to the screen. How did you feel about it? I thought it was visually ravishing. People who've read the book, I think it's a nice compliment. I think the storytelling didn't quite capture everything in the book, but that's often quite common. It's, you know, it is a, I don't know how long Life of Pi is, but some 300 and some pages. You know, that's a lot of rumination, and it's hard to capture that in, in a movie. But generally, I was very happy. I'm, I believe in art. I believe in the risks of art. So even if it had been a dreadful movie, I wouldn't have regretted it. It's, I, I believe in the risks that artists take. Whether it's a poet doing a little you know, haiku on a napkin or a massive Hollywood production, you can be as cynical as you want about Hollywood. What I've noticed, my personal experience of Hollywood, is to get the gates to open is nearly impossible. Once they're open, everything flows, and then it is creativity that's fully addressed. Then it's no longer about money. And in fact, it's an extraordinarily wasteful process, the way movies are made. The extra footage done in making movies means that you can actually make several movies out of one long shoot. But after that, once the green light is given, it's all about the creativity. And there are, in Hollywood, uh, there are extraordinarily creative people. And in fact, to bring it all together, you know, writing a book is, you know, it's just you. It's just you sitting in your little garret working do a Hollywood production, these big... I mean, at the height of production in, in Taiwan, there are over 500 people working. And then that's not even counting the people in Hollywood and then the people in New York where Ang Lee is from, and that's not counting all the computer people who are generating the computer-generated imagery. To bring all that together in one seamless whole is, 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 a, is, a, is a daunting endeavor. Uh, Jan Martel, that particular book, Life of Pi, changed your life. I mean, that made you a successful author. No, I was successful beforehand, not in a commercial way. It may be a lot wealthier, which is nice because it's fine being poor and living your dreams in your 20s. It's fine being poor and living your dreams in your 30s. By the time you get to 40, poverty sucks. If Life of Pi hadn't succeeded, it was th I was 38, I think, when it came out. If it hadn't succeeded, this bizarre tale of you know mixing zoology and theology, I would have been someone with the most pathetic CV. The last job I held down was as a security guard, and that was you know 15 years earlier. And before that, I was a tree planter and a dishwasher. I'd have been a 30-year-old guy with on his CV, you know, under hobbies, three books written. And I know loads of writers who've given everything to the muse, uh, to, the, uh, to their art, and received very little back in terms of material reward, and that's hard. But, you know, you have to tell the story that you, you need to feel, have to tell, and uh, I took that risk. So it made me materially more comfortable. But as a writer, it changes nothing. If you're successful commercially, it doesn't improve you as a writer. Your strengths, perhaps, you're more aware of them, but your weaknesses, you know, how do we eliminate the weaknesses of one's art. I don't know. I have the same strengths and the same weaknesses. I wrestle with the same things each time I write a new book. And when you write a new book, you do close the, the door on the world and all the noise about Life of Pi and the new project, whether it be Beatrice and Virgil or this one, is a whole new endeavor. A second ago, when I said successful, you corrected me and said successful in terms of commerce. 
Do you look at those other earlier novels as equally successful then? Well, absolutely. The real success of a book, I think, is whether it, it, it communicates to someone, whether it reaches them. You know, commercial success is very satisfying, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, fantastically well-known today, completely forgotten tomorrow. And the same thing. Some books are obscure for decades and suddenly are rediscovered. Right. Uh, and ultimately, the success of Life of Pi, to me, is how many readers it touched. And I know that in terms of people I actually met who you know, shaking with emotion would communicate how much the book meant to them, or people who write to me. I still get letters today. The book is sort of, I've, I haven't read it in years, and it's not that I've quite forgotten it, but in chunks of it I have. But everyone reads it, it's like it's a new experience. And, it, right. and that's the real success of art. Art is profoundly social. Art is a gift. You're giving it to someone. And when someone unwraps that present and is moved by it, it's very gratifying. So that's the real success of Life of Pi. And more people have done that, opened up, its, you know, the, un, unwrapped the paper and, and been surprised by the pleasure. But it happened with the first ones. And each of the books I've written also, I should say, has been an attempt to understand something. So my first book was a collection of short stories. It sold 500 copies in Canada. But it helped me understand what stories are. In that first book, you know, one of the stories, the main one, the novella, is of two students. And one has contracts AIDS because of a blood transfusion, so slowly spiraling towards death. And he and his friend, to pass the time while he's visiting him at the hospital, decide to invent this story about this imaginary Italian family in Helsinki. And every time they meet each other, they have to tell an episode in the life of this family. And it's hard to invent stories out of nothing, so they decide that each episode must resemble one historical event of the 20th century. So the first episode of the story of these Helsinki Rocamatios has to be equivalent to 1901. And in 1901, Queen Victoria died. So in the first episode of the Rocamatios, the patriarch dies. So there's a parallel between their story and the history of the 20th century. So there I was looking at where do stories come from, what do they mean, and I was also looking at the 20th century. Where was the 20th century going? Was it a century of increasing successes, like the invention of you know, vaccination, of the zipper, of the aspirin, or is it one of war and genocide? You know, where is our century going, and what, do st what is the commentary that stories can make on that? My second book, Self, which sold all of 1,200 copies in Canada, was a story of a boy who, while backpacking in Portugal, one day metamorphosizes into a woman. And he's a woman for seven years, and then she metamorphosizes into a boy again. And during the course of that transition, her orientation changes. So when he becomes a woman, he's still for a while, in his mind, a male heterosexual, so he's still attracted to women. So the first time he kisses a woman, to her, it's a normal heterosexual act, but to others it looked like a lesbian act. And then eventually she drifts toward being attracted to men, and the first time she kisses a boy, in her mind she's here, the, the sentence pops in, I'm gay. So I was looking at the idea of the body being an environment, that the, the physiology of our body somehow can dispose us in a certain direction. Not that it can't be overridden, of course. And so I was looking at gender identity, sexual orientation, in a sort of dispassionate way. I was interested in, in looking at that aspect of us as a, as a species. And Life of Pi was an exploration of faith and religion, as I explained earlier. So in each one, I was trying to understand something, and I did understand it in my personal terms, and therefore it's a successful book. So all my books are like children. I love all my children. As you're talking, I realize that High Mountains of Portugal, if you were to look at the stories, the different stories contained within, uh, I mean, there are three sections, but each section has many, many different stories in it including the story about Christie, the story about Jesus, the story about the father in... Um, Sao Tome. Yeah. All of them have a lot of different stories, and Life of Pi has multiple stories, too. So, in a sense, it's all about story. Well, absolutely. I find stories are the great way, the great tool for understanding. I find if you really want to understand something, 
you have to understand it through story. I mean, obviously, histories and biographies are also very elucidating, but really, the best tool we've found is fiction. And I mean about great fiction, because the empathetic imagination, the imagination that seeks to understand, can go way beyond the facts. Because sometimes the facts are limiting. And I'll give you a very concrete example. Uh, David Grossman, the Israeli novelist, wrote a novel called Sea Under Love. And it's a novel where he grapples with the Holocaust. And there's one scene set in a camp, and it features a Jew who cannot be killed. He symbolizes the immortal spirit of Judaism. And at one point, he ends up in the gas chamber, like, like obviously like a, a huge number of Jews. And all around them, the Jews die. And then they open up the chamber, and there he is. And the commandant is surprised by this and takes him in. Now, of course, this is a historical impossibility. No one has survived the actual gas chambers. We've had witness to them once the doors were opened to the horror of it, of these people struggling to survive the last seconds of their lives and what they did. But we have no real witness. And David was criticized for that in some quarters, saying, you can't go there. It's a sacred space, in a sense. It'd be like going beyond the curtain, you know, in, in, a, in a synagogue. You can't go there. It's, you have to leave it there. I agreed with him. He was saying, you know, he is allowed to go there with his empathetic imagination because he's trying to understand there, and he can only do it with his imagination because you can't do it with the facts. So there's an interest in the imagination going beyond facts to get to that truth. And I think generally great fiction does that. It has a holistic approach that takes into account factuality, historical facts, psychological facts, but goes beyond that, sometimes ignoring the facts, sometimes in fact transmogrifying them, but nonetheless to get to a reality that helps us uh, uh, explain our condition to us. Which brings us to the nonfiction book, which is Letters to Stephen Harper. I haven't seen the book. I was trying to get a handle on what exactly you were doing there. Well, for four years in Canada, I'm Canadian, for four years, Stephen Harper was the Prime Minister of Canada for about 10 years, and he was one of these dismal, stupid white males who dominate our lives. And um, he's one of these men, I think, who in their early 20s stops reading fiction because he figures it's not real and therefore its truth must be relative and doesn't read for 40 years and only then once he's been pushed into retirement does he perhaps start reading again and rediscover what fiction can do. And so Stephen Harper is a middle-aged white man who doesn't read. And is that a problem for me? In terms of him being a human being? No. But in terms of being prime minister of my country? Yes, because he has power over me. And therefore whether he reads or not does matter to me because what one reads kind of says something about the quality of their dreams. And it's important to me what the dreams of my politicians are, because their dreams can become my nightmares. So if I find out that a politician only reads Ayn Rand, it makes me think, hmm, okay, I'm a little bit suspicious of that. If a politician only reads, you know, I don't want to slander something, but some very popular writer, then, you know, you want to, I want to get a, a sense of the temper of their mind, and the temper of the mind will, to some extent, be determined by reading. And I also don't know how someone can know the human condition if they haven't done one of two things, either read books or traveled. Traveling is a way to unsettle you. You, try, you, you. If I took you and plunked you in the middle of Pakistan or the middle of Papua New Guinea or in Africa, it would shake you. It would change you. And the same thing with a book. A book is another form of traveling. It increases your empathy because a good book will make you live the life of those characters and you therefore get a bit of their wisdom. You know, art generally, if you're disposed towards it, if you open yourself to it, if you read it in good faith, does lead to your betterment. And so someone who does not read, it scares me. So what I did for four years is I sent him a book every two weeks. Short books, because the usual claim, the usual excuse that people who don't read give is that they're too busy. So they're usually books under 200 pages of all genres. Novels, poetry, plays, 
very little non-fiction, graphic novels, children's stories, all cultures, Quebecois, Canadian, American, African, all European, all times, you know, from the Bhagavad Gita. I send him a Harlequin romance, Agatha Christie, I send him Pearl Baca. Uh, and each one I wrote a letter explaining why it would be worth reading it. So one example, that, one that I, I don't know why I was focused on, is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Wonderfully dense, rich novel in which you read about a 12-year-old African-American girl from a highly dysfunctional family in, in Ohio, I think, some town in Ohio. Well, you read that book, and you are that you know little African-American girl. And, you know, we're talking, Stephen Harper, I am an empowered white male. Well, while I read that book, I wasn't an empowered white male. I was a disempowered African-American girl. And that's good, because now my empathy is increased by having lived that life. Same thing with Pearl Buck, The Good Earth. Fantastic book. And so now I have a little more of a feeling what it would like to be a disempowered Chinese peasant before the Chinese Revolution. Every book does that. And so you read many books, you've read many lives, and presumably you're a little bit wiser. So I sent these books and these uh, letters to Stephen Harper to try to sort of say, this is what you get with the written word. And if you don't re- read all these, these books or any other books, how do you know the human condition? How do you dare presume to know what's good for us? And this is something, an approach I think is valid for all leaders, not just political leaders, leaders of corporations, leaders of police forces, leaders of armies. If you want to lead, you must read. And was there any response whatsoever? Zilch. I got seven letters from his correspondence staff, but those are sort of form letters. You know, dear Mr. Martel, thank you for saying the Prime Minister. Be assured that he's touched, yours truly. But from the man himself, nothing. And, you know, I'm quite a well-known writer in Canada. You know, Life of Pi, Booker Prize, Hollywood movie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That I didn't get a single response from the man himself, I found outrageous. Because in a sense, he is, I'm sorry, he is accountable to me. This is a democracy. And it's not like my letters were threatening. They were certainly ironic, but nothing compared to the the rough treatment that you get in politics. You know, in, in Canada, we have a parliamentary democracy, so every day the, House of Co- the Prime Minister is in the House of Commons being railed at and assaulted by the opposition. My gentle, arch-ironic letters are nothing in comparison. And he could have replied in an equally ironic, arch letter. He could have said, you know, after five letters of mine, he could have said, Dear Mr. Martel, yes, I do read. In fact, I love this that author and that. He could have been lying through his teeth. It would have shut me up. So it was an odd tactical mistake that he never did because I had to continue. And these letters, this big fat book is 101 letters I wrote to the man. And there was never any response even after he got thrown out of office? Nothing? No, no, that'll be even less. No, no, he knows. And I know, you know, by six degrees of separation, we know that he got the books. We know that he looked at them. We know that his staff even prepared a brief summary of the first books. It was mentioned in the House of Commons. There was a website. I did all kinds of interviews. Some of the letters were for a while reprinted in the Ottawa Citizen, which is the main newspaper in the capital. No, no, it had a lot of media repercussions, echoes in the media. And no, never, no, not nothing. And people said, well, you know, maybe he does read, but he's private about it. I said, well, you know, he loves hockey and we know about it because he talks about it he wrote a book on hockey in fact you know if you love something you talk about it that he would not talk about it you know says something even that he did that is far more than any republican candidate running for president well you know it's funny i remember people would compare him to george bush except i remember remember there was a time when george bush and carl rove were having this competition about books that they read you know i'm certainly not defending george bush that's the last thing i want to do but i think stephen harper in some ways is even worse because at least george bush read now god knows what he read i think he read big historical tomes on you know american history but at least that's something that would flesh him out but stephen harper i think is even worse than that i think he's one of these ideologues who doesn't even read because it might disturb his ideologies and he wants to keep the world simple but yeah it was a campaign i read for four years i was happy doing it, it was fun rereading or discovering new books 
sounds like the book itself is probably a great book to read. It's is 101 it? letters on <laughs> a, a wide variety of books. Uh, uh, yeah, some people have liked it. It's, uh, I don't think it's published in the United States just because it, it was addressed to a Canadian politician. You know, as one last thing about that. So here I am sending letters to Stephen Harper, and one day, out of the blue, here I am living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Okay, pull out the atlas, right. people. Go and see where it is. One day in my letterbox, there's a letter... And at the top left, it said the White House. And I figured, oh, was that some sort of fashion store or something? And no, it was literally the White House. I had received a letter from Barack Obama, from the President of the United States. I'm not even, it's not like I'm a dual citizen here, that I have American. I don't. I'm, I'm just a Canadian. It's the only passport right. I hold. Here was a letter from Barack Obama, who had read Life of Pi with his daughter and thought that he should write to me. A little handwritten note discussing Life of Pi. A foreign politician, a foreign president writing to me about a book, uh, my book that he'd read. Meanwhile, my own prime minister, after 101 letters, nothing. What does that say about the quality of the, of the man? Of both men, in fact, in different ways. Jan Martel, now High Mountains of Portugal is out. Have you begun work on another book? No, I, I work slowly and for a long time on my books, so I have nothing uh, in mind whatsoever. In a sense, I am working on, on four books, actually. They're called My Children. I have four young children, six, four, two, and nine months old. And to me, they're like little Russian novels. Meandering plot, great setting. So I'm attending to those four novels. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.